You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. We're kicking off a new message series today called Living Grateful, and we're sort of doing a Thanksgiving in July. Uh, since every November for us at Vineyard Church is focused on ministry to the poor and compassion. Uh, so we are taking July to really focus on gratitude and thanksgiving. And uh, with uh, the celebration of our nation's birthday coming up this week, we thought it would be a great opportunity uh, to invite an old friend to come and to share this morning. Uh, I want to welcome uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eric Dean, who is a chaplain in the United States Army. Uh, he is currently stationed at Fort Jackson, but he and his wife, Sylvia, and their sons were part of our, our church family many, many years ago. And uh, since that time of being here, uh, God has taken Eric and his family all over the world to do some really wonderful ministry, some very innovative ministry uh, under the op- auspices of uh, the military chaplain's office, particularly doing uh, uh, incredibly uh, creative and innovative work with PTSD veterans, the veterans who've experienced PTSD in Europe. And uh, just so thankful to have Eric and Sylvie and uh, their family with us this morning. So would you guys please join me in welcoming Chaplain Eric Dean. Thank you. Well, good morning. It is good. Uh, I was telling my wife this morning, I said, it's like, it's like we're home, right? We've been gone 13 years. It's been 13 years since we worshiped together with you. But we walked back in and it was like we, we just walked back home, right? So I want to thank you for the warm welcome. And I want to thank you, more importantly, for who you are in Christ and what you're doing for his kingdom and just for how you represent the light and love of Jesus as a body of Christ. So as Reese said, I, I am an army chaplain. It's my privilege to serve soldiers, families, and DA civilians as a minister on loan from my local church. It's a pleasure for me and my wife Sylvia and our three boys, Joshua, Josiah, and Jaden, to worship with you this morning. And um, during our time at Vineyard Augusta, Sylvia and I became very close with, with Reese and Mary Margaret, and of course their, their daughters. And we, uh, we, it was providential that we were here. We found out during our time here that we were pregnant with our third son, Jaden, who's sitting right over there. Well, as we were here, uh, we were all alone, didn't know anyone, I mean, apart from, you know, the church family here. And when Sylvie found out she was pregnant, she went in for a checkup. And the doctor told her, the, the person that was examining her told her, yeah, we see that, that there should be a pregnancy there, but we can't see anything. We don't see a baby. So we recommend a DNC. And as, for many of you who, who've gone through that, you know that that's a very traumatic thing. And we're just praying, we were devastated. We're like, oh Lord, what do you do? And it just, it just really broke our hearts and we're alone. So we don't know who to reach out to. And, and Mary and Margaret and Reese came alongside of us during those weeks as we were praying and, and unsure and just didn't know and our hearts were breaking and just loved on us and prayed with us and walked with us. And then we went back and they saw the baby. And that baby's sitting right here today. So I say that to say thank you to Reese and Mary Margaret for your beautiful friendship, for who you are to us, what you mean to us, and for the way that you lead a body as Christ would lead his church. Thank you. Yeah, that's appropriate. 
But there are some others I want to thank this morning, right? Several in this room have served our nation honorably and have defended our freedoms in times of crisis, while others of us have waited and prayed that our soldier, sailor, airman, or marine would return home safely. To each of you, I want to say thank you. It is because of God's grace and your sacrifice and the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands like yourselves that we live in a nation where we still have the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and and others, just to name a few. Over the course of my adult life, I've spent 16 years living overseas in six different countries and working extensively in four additional ones. In some cases, prior to being commissioned in the Army, I went native, right? So I, I... Learn the language. I lived as the people lived. I would go for weeks at a time not speaking English to anyone and just became one of them. And no matter how much work, effort, or energy I poured into doing that, I was always known as the American, right? I was like, man, that's a lot of work to not overcome this identity that they've given me. And it it annoyed me a little bit, right? Because I'd invested a lot. But then I came to realize, no, this this is who I am, I should be proud of this. this. This background, this heritage, this language, this culture, this has influenced a part of how I present myself to the world, how I see the world and interact with it. And it's okay, and it's good, and it's beautiful. And though I've lived in several different countries and have come to appreciate and love and value the beauty and the culture and the, the uniqueness of each one, I've also learned that there is absolutely no other feeling like it in the world when you come through immigration And that immigration officer looks you in the eye and says, welcome home. Now, I fully acknowledge the many divergent viewpoints in our nation, the issues and tensions that we're experiencing. But I've got to admit, I've I've been a lot of places. I still believe this is one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth, by God's grace. My nationality is, is not limited to my passport. It's, it's part of who I am. And this identity has only been further solidified through deployments, through combat, through ministering to countless wounded and conducting more memorial ceremonies than I ever care to do. And as grateful as I am for this nation and for the freedoms that we enjoy, this identity is only a part of who I am. You see, the Bible teaches me about my real identity, who I really am, And it's defined by my creator, not my nationality or my culture. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians 3, verses 2 through 17. If you want to follow along on the overhead screens, you can do that. If you're watching via live stream, it should be presented for you on your screen. But we're going to read together Colossians 3, verses 2 through 17. Set your minds that are on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him also in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Today I want us to explore together how embracing our true identity helps us to live gratefully. And in doing so, we're going to examine how humility and joy help us more fully to embrace or, or, or to enable us to live gratefully. So let's begin by taking a look at the first idea, and that's that the more we embrace our identity, the more we will live gratefully. We have to start by defining some terms. Can we do that? Let's talk about identity. I briefly spoke about the common identity that we share as Americans, but it goes far beyond that. There's so much conversation today about the uniqueness of one's identity as it relates to nationality or to race, ethnicity, gender, sexual preference, or socioeconomic status, among many, many other things. On one level, the intent behind defining ourselves by these many labels is to give uniqueness and value to each person's lived experience. On another level, there's a desire to right the wrongs of the past and to create a more perfect union in the present by leveling the playing field for everyone. As noble as these aspirations might be, it's also difficult to ignore that these identities and labels that we give ourselves and one another end up being divisive. In our desire to be seen and heard and valued, we quickly, or we can quickly, demonize and dismiss the other if we're not careful to be willing to listen and to be challenged. We all have an agenda, we all have a perspective, and we seek moral authority, we seek power, and we seek these things by defining ourselves in some way, in some context, as superior to the other. The truth is, is that we have far more in common than we have difference. The Bible is clear about what we have in common, and that is this, that we are separated by, from God by our sin, that we are all sinners. Look with me back at our text this morning. Who does the Bible say that we were before Christ? Before we met Christ, we were the sexually immoral, we were the impure, we were the ones ruled by passion with evil desire and covetedness. We were full of anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. We lied. We were the labeled, the discriminated, the overlooked, the abandoned, those without hope and those without God. And as different as each one of us is, the truth of the matter is we're all sitting in the same boat. Our ethnicities may be different, but our position before God is the same. Our genders may be different, but our position before God is the same. Our political views may be different, but our position before God is the same. Our national origin may be different, but our position before God is the same. The way that we read and interpret scripture may be different, but before God, we are all the same. We're separated by our own sin. We're hurting, overlooked, abandoned, rejected, disillusioned, 
Our own sin, not the sin of others, but our own sin condemns us before a holy God. In Christ, however, we have a new identity. We have a new label that trumps all other labels. And that is this, Colossians 3.11 from our text that we read this morning. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's everything and everything that our hearts have ever longed for is found in him. So how do we obtain this new identity? The Bible says that Jesus Christ paid the price of your sin and my sin for us on the cross. We know that he was tortured, crucified, died and buried, rose again after three days. The Bible teaches us that if we repent of our sin, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, we can be saved. This means that we can finally have peace with God, that we can be forgiven, we can be healed, we can be cleansed from our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for his sake, he, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is our new identity, righteous, redeemed, forgiven, clean, pure, holy, in Christ. And our new identity now frames how we understand and engage the world around us in three primary ways. First, it changes how we engage other believers. Galatians 3.18 parrots what we saw in Colossians 3.11. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, not male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. There is one family and one body. It also changes how we relate to the lost. We are to be messengers of hope to the least and the last of the lost. Isaiah 61, one through two, very famous passage that many of you know by heart. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. A prophetic passage about Jesus Christ that is also our inheritance and our mission through our shared identity in Christ. We are not only to be messengers of hope, but we are to be intentional about making disciples of Christ. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Many of you know this passage as well. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. And we have this beautiful promise, and lo, I'm I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our new identity helps us to understand how we engage other believers, how we engage the lost, but also how we relate to the state. Ephesians 2.19 says this, excuse me. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Your ultimate citizenship, your ultimate identity is as a child of God above all else. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Christians are placed in cultures, in societies, to be good citizens for what? To be ready for every good deed. We are to be a force of good in the societies and, 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 and nations that God has placed us in. We're dispersed for a reason, so that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people can hear. Hebrews 11.13 
These, the saints of old, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. As Christians, we too are strangers and exiles on this earth. For heaven is our home, not this world. We identify as children of God through Christ, first and foremost. Finally, Jeremiah 27, 9. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This was a message that Jeremiah gave to the people of Israel who were in exile in Babylon. They were living among a foreign people in a foreign land, away from their home, away from their culture, away from what their identity, as it were. But God told them, the more you pray for the people that are keeping you in exile, the more you pray for this place where you've been sent to, for those who, who have uh, governance over you, the more you ask me to bless them, and I will, you're gonna receive the benefits of that blessing as well. Now, if we think back on these passages that we just read, we're strangers, we're exiles in this world. So there's a command for us too, to pray for the welfare, for the prosperity of the place where God has sent us, to pray for our leaders, to pray for our government, to pray for, for these societal issues that plague us so that as God blesses it, as God prospers it, it will go well with us also. Here's the key, being an American does, does not make you a Christian, but being a Christian absolutely makes you a better American. It makes us better citizens in that we take our mandate to pray for the welfare of this nation and the wisdom of its leaders seriously. It makes us better citizens in that we engage society through caring for the poor and the needy, through Christian morals and ethics, which so many times have been employed to affect positive change in our nation. Think back with me, if you will, to the abolitionist movement of the 19th century, initiated by and largely driven by the church. Think with me, if you will, about the civil rights movement back in the mid-20th century, initiated by and largely driven by the church. Following Jesus makes us better citizens because we love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet, our true citizenship as Christians is not defined by geographical borders or a common culture, but by the person of Jesus Christ. Because of his great love and his sacrifice for us, we have a new identity. And because we have a new identity, we can live gratefully, knowing that we have redemption, peace with God, and an eternal hope. The more that we embrace this identity, the more we will live gratefully. Why? Well, there are two interdependent truths of our new identity that are essential to it and subsequently to living gratefully. The first is that the greater our humility, the greater our gratitude. The greater our humility, the greater our gratitude. Look with me, if you will, back at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Humility comes from possessing both a self-awareness and a Christ consciousness. We 
fully see who we are without God. We know our sins. We know what we're capable of. We know what we've done. We know all the skeletons in our closet. We know the stuff that we pray to God no one else ever finds out about. And the more that we acknowledge that and embrace that, yes, this is who I am. This is my story. This is me without hope, without a future. The more that we cannot help but be grateful when we consider the beauty and the majesty and the love of such a compassionate God who would sacrifice his own son to save someone as wretched as us. The more we see Christ in all of his glory and the more we see ourselves as we really are without God, we can't help but live gratefully. But unless we remember who we are and if we fail to forget what Christ did for us, embracing our identity can lead to spiritual arrogance. In another word, pride. Luke 18, 9 through 14 gives us the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, in, in the first part of this parable, you see the Pharisee standing in front of the, at the very front of the temple of God, and he's praying, and he says, Lord, I thank you that, that I fast twice a week, that I give a tenth of all I have to the poor, and most of all, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. And he points to the tax collector, who is not at the front of the temple. Instead, he's at the very end of the temple, at the very back, and he's beating his breast, and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asks the probing question, who do you think walked away forgiven that day? Throughout history, however, some Christians have forgotten the mercy of God and fallen into the trap of spiritual arrogance. Not always, but often this slow march to spiritual arrogance is coupled with a desire for power and it aligns itself politically. And there are so many examples of this. So I just want to focus on the, the mid to late 20th century, if we can do that. Otherwise, we're going to be here for a very long time. <laughs> Let's start with the State Church of China. You may be familiar with the State Church of China. Uh, so China actually does allow churches to exist. I don't know if you knew that. But they have to be vetted by the Chinese Communist Party. And so what this means is that no pastor, no seminary, no authority exists that is above the state. To the point that in the picture you see here of the uh, Catholic Mass, the bishops in China are approved by the Chinese government, not the Pope. That's why they're not recognized. And they, they want to ensure that whatever message the church is putting out, it aligns with Communist Party doctrine and ideology, that there's nothing subversive in what they're teaching, which is what makes the underground church, which are the other pictures you see up there, so dangerous. Those who worship illegally because they teach the gospel that, that, and the gospel is subversive because it expresses value for the individual and a belief in a moral authority outside of the party. And so sometimes these underground churches, they meet in homes and that sort of thing. They keep it kind of quiet and, you know, that's okay. Uh, but the larger they get and they do grow because people are hungry for the gospel. They grow. Once these leaders become known, many times they're rounded up, they're arrested, they're, they're, they're put into prison for extended periods of time, sometimes beaten, sometimes killed. When these churches finally build buildings, because some of them do, and they, they will call it something that the Chinese government doesn't recognize, and okay, here's your building permit. When they find out, they'll bulldoze it, blow it up, as you see in the picture up there. They, they, they do this because they're considered subversive. 
to the party ideology. But the church that aligns with the government, that subordinates itself to the government, that parrots the message of the government, well, that church is allowed to continue with protection and security, but it comes at a very high price, the price of the integrity of the gospel. We have another example from recent history, and that is the Russian Orthodox Church. You see these pictures up here of, that have come out of uh, old, the old Soviet Union. The relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Soviet Union is pretty well known. That They stood as kind of a religious puppet. They would em- endorse and support anything that the, the uh, USSR would, would put out. Um, they assisted and supported the persecution of those in the underground church movement, mostly evangelicals, Pentecostals, through its alliance with the government, and they implied God's blessing on the systemic oppression, incarceration, and execution of literally millions of people. And today, the Russian Orthodox Church continues to support the current Russian government in its activities against Ukraine. Uh, I find it interesting that one of the very first casualties as the opening salvos of the crisis in Ukraine happened, one of the first casualties was the dean of a Baptist seminary in Ukraine. There's another example that uh, may be very familiar to you, and this comes from uh, World War II, um, that is the German Christians. Now, we know that the Roman Catholic Church tacitly supported the Nazi government in that they would not object to the Nazi government's handling of the Jews as long as they were free to worship the way that they wanted to. So the Nazis said, okay. But what was even more horrific was what the state Protestant church under Germany did. Under Hitler, this church called itself German Christians. And not only did it lend its full support to Hitler and to the Nazi regime and policies, it went so far as to completely identify with that government. It changed out even its ecclesial linens on the altar with black linens that were emblazoned with a swastika of all things. And you see pictures of those on the left hand of your screen. They went so far as to have pastors step aside so that Nazi officers in uniform could conduct weddings and baptisms because they fully submitted to the idea that the state had the authority over the church. Now there's a big difference between submitting to the authorities as we see in Romans 12 for the purpose of earthly matters and subjugating spiritual matters to the authorities that exist on earth. There's a big difference between those two. For things, you know, Jesus put it this way, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to Rome what is, or give to God what is God. There's a difference between the two matters. By contrast, the confessing church of Germany did just that. These, the pictures of these leaders appear on your right. Um, this was an underground church movement during Nazi Germany. And you'll see some of their leaders there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you have heard of him. You'll also see someone there uh, by the name of uh, Martin Niemöller, a famous theologian. Many of you have read his works. You'll also see an unknown figure at the very top of that quadrant of pictures there. And that's a pastor named Paul Schneider. He was incarcerated in a place called Buchenwald. Maybe you've heard of Buchenwald. It's a concentration camp. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel and the Nazi party officials in his area told him to stop that he couldn't preach against what the Nazis were doing. And he did it anyway because it violated God's view of humans. You can't treat humans like they're dirt, like they're rats, as they were being called. He stood up and spoke out. And he was put into Buchenwald concentration camp. So to, at, the, at the very top right quadrant up there, you'll see a, a cell there. And it's kind of hard to see 
but it's painted green at the bottom, white at the top. You'll see a little window there. Paul Schneider was incarcerated in that cell in Buchenwald. And in, in the morning, uh, the Nazis would have all the concentration camp um, prisoners assemble in the, in the yard there, and they would call, you know, roll, make sure everybody was there. During that time, Paul Schneider, who wasn't allowed to go out, would open up his window, and he would call out to those assembled. He would say, here, you're going to be tortured, and you'll find nothing but death. But Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life, and whosoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. And as he was proclaiming that message, the Nazi guards pulled him down, they beat him with sticks, and they injected him with lethal injection into his heart, and he died right there for the sake of the gospel. His identity as a Christian superseded any alliance he had to his nationality or his government. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken to Flossenburg, where he was hung, resuscitated, by the way, all this while being naked, hung again, resuscitated, hung again, and this was filmed for Hitler's pleasure so that he could watch it over and over. And he kept being hung and resuscitated until they couldn't resuscitate him anymore. And then they burned his body. Martin Niemöller actually escaped. He spent the longest time in prison. He spent a total of seven years in captivity from 1937 to 1945. Uh, sorry, eight years. Four of those he spent in a concentration camp in Dachau being one of those. And it was Niemöller who was reflecting on his own spiritual pride when he wrote these following words. First they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communist and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. Unfortunately, the German, Russian, and Chinese churches aren't the, only, aren't the rare exceptions in our own nation, we have entire denominations that began due to power and politics. Take, for example, the Southern Baptists. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the Southern Baptists. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I'm ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor. I love the Southern Baptists. They have many, many people who are dear, precious people who love the Lord and who share the gospel. But the Southern Baptist Convention began in the early 19th century, how? because a missionary was applying to, to serve overseas with the American Baptist Church and wanted to take his slave with him. And the American Baptist, mission, American Baptist Church said, no, you can't do that, that's, that's, that's immoral, that's unethical. And so he and his sending church and his state, they got upset about that. And they formed the Southern Baptist Convention. Can anybody tell me where they did that? Augusta, Georgia, May 1845. Now, much to their credit, the Southern Baptists not only acknowledge this, but have publicly repented of their stance towards slavery and civil rights and, and other things, and they have publicly sought the forgiveness of African Americans for that position, and, and, and I can only say amen. When the church allows politics to take precedence over the gospel, it never ends well. That doesn't mean that Christians should be silent. No, Christians should pray for the welfare of their own countries and their own cities. Christians should express their views to their leaders in, in the appropriate ways. Christians should speak out about evil policies that are in opposition to the character and nature of God as, as found in scripture. But all other allegiances must subordinate themselves to our allegiance to Christ. I'm concerned that our church not necessarily the Augusta Vineyard, but the American church at large 
is slowly falling prey to becoming a political tool in the hands of one party or another, rather than an instrument of grace in the hands of a holy God. It deceives us into ascribing messianic traits to politicians, believing that only they can save us and can give us hope when in reality it is only Christ who can do that. When our passion for a political or social issue is greater than our passion for Christ, we've fallen into idolatry. I'm gonna say that again, because some of you may be taking notes. When our passion for a social or political issue is greater than our passion for Christ, we've fallen into idolatry. When we draw lines in the sand and we declare, you can only be a Christian if you hold this political position or vote this particular way, we've fallen into spiritual pride. Only God can judge that. So let me help frame this from a biblical perspective. When Jesus returns, he won't be coming to take sides, he'll be coming to take over. With that in mind, let's walk in humility. Let's let God be God. Let's remember who we were before Christ saved us and how great his love for us is. And yes, let's pray for the welfare of our nation, but as we do so, let us also pray with the same passion and conviction, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The first of these two interdependent truths that I talked about the ones that mark our identity and lead to grateful living is this. The greater our humility, the greater our gratitude. The second is this. The greater our joy, the greater our gratitude. Colossians 3.16 tells us this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart towards God. How are we doing on time, Reese? We're good? Okay, thank you. From Galatians 5, 22 through 23, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you know Christ, you are, and if you're walking in the Spirit, joy is gonna mark your life. Now this word grateful appears 157 times in Scripture. The, the Greek word is kariti, and the root of that is the word kara, which is the Greek word for joy. You cannot be grateful apart from being filled with joy. The prayer of David reminds us of this in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we remember what Christ saved us from, his great love for us and the hope we have in him, we can't help but be filled with joy that expresses itself in grateful service. Two brief stories and then, then we're done. One is Niner Robs. I remember as a 12-year-old boy going to church and there was a 70-something-year-old lady, which I thought was ancient at the time, named Nina Robs. Man, I have never met such a joyful, delightful person in all my life. She lit up a room when she would start speaking and every word that she said focused on the goodness of Christ. Christ had redeemed her, had saved her. She wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. Now, as happens sometimes with, with the elderly, Miss Robs fell down and broke her hip one time. She had to go to the hospital. So my family went to see her to see how she's doing. And she's lying there in her hospital bed and we're all feeling bad for her, like Mr. Rob, man, I'm so sorry, this happened to you. She's like, sorry, what do you mean? You know, the Lord did this? Since I've been here, I've been able to witness my doctor, my nurses, and this patient over here and their whole family. She was giving thanks to God for having broken her hip because she could share the gospel. You see, she found joy in suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's living grateful.
One of the places that I live, one of the countries I live, was Morocco. And there was a young Christian there, I'll call him Rashid, who, because of his profession of faith in Christ, was disowned by his family, was unable to complete his education, could not get a job, was homeless, and lived on the hospitality of other Christians in the underground church. And because of his faith in Christ, he had been arrested twice already, beaten, and, and, and tortured for the sake of the gospel. Now, Rashid could never spend any, any longer than one or two nights at any given place. He had to move all the time because if the police found him, they'd throw him back in jail and do it again. Well, Rashid stayed with me one night, and the next day as he's leaving, walking down the sidewalk, what do you think happens? Police van pulls up, they jump out, they throw him in the back, they take him to prison. We don't know where, we didn't get an explanation. He spent a week in prison. During that time, he was tortured with car batteries. He had cigarettes put out on his body. Uh, he had nothing to eat. When we got him back, after about a week, he had a high fever, was delirious. So we got him treated, and then once he healed up a bit, a bit we said, Rashid, man, we gotta think about this, right? You can't keep living like this. He said, Eric, you don't get it. Every time they beat me, all they did was show me the truth of the gospel. If they're that afraid of it, I can't help but preach more. It's changed my life. They thought they were going to break me. What they did was made me more committed to sharing the gospel with every person I meet. Rashid was grateful in his suffering because he saw more of the beauty of Christ. He was filled with joy. Living grateful is a choice and a lifestyle. It involves a conscious decision to embrace our identity in Christ and to walk in humility and in joy. And as we do so, our gratitude to God will overflow in acts of service, witness, and worship. So as the worship team comes forward, I'd like to invite you all to join me in prayer. We can stand together. That's great. Father, I thank you for the gift of identity, and I thank you, God, that you call us to fully embrace the identity you give us. No longer cast out, no longer cast aside, abandoned, afraid, or abused. We're no longer guilty or dirty, but we are clean, forgiven, restored, and accepted in the beloved through Jesus Christ. May we never, ever forget or lose sight of how great your love for us is. And may we forever walk in the joy of your salvation. And on this special weekend, we thank you for our country and for the way that you've protected and blessed her. May you continue to do so as we seek by your grace to become a more united, fair, and loving people. Forgive us for those times when our passion for a political or social issue held more of our devotion than Christ did. Forgive us of demonizing the other while believing that only our side could save America. For the truth is, Lord, only you can do that. And we ask you to do so. We know, Lord, that salvation starts first in the hearts of people. So, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never made a decision to renounce and repent of their sins and to seek your forgiveness, I pray that today would be the day to do so. And if that desire expresses the yearning of your heart, I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I ask that you forgive me of my sin. I renounce it. I believe that you died on the cross for me and rose after three days. I believe that you are Lord. I ask that you save me and fill me with your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, and if that's you and you pray that prayer and that expresses the desire of your heart, I know our pastors would love to talk to you.